Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We'll begin reading with verse number 1. The title of this message is The Salvation of a Terrorist. We're in a series called Doing Church. Doing Church. What does church do? What does the church do in given situations? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Before we read the scripture, I want to ask you to bow with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled that we have the opportunity this morning to worship you, and I thank you for your presence in this place, your presence that inhabited our worship thus far. We're about to open up your word and read from your words, and Lord, I pray that you would help us just to be blessed in the reading of your word. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to draw from your word those things that will help us as a church to be better at doing church. Lord, as we come to you also, we pray for those who are in our church or are friends of our church who need to be prayed for. We pray for Jonathan Beatty. We pray for Miss Edith Powell as she recovers from having a blood clot in her leg. We pray for Jerry Thompson, and we pray for Miss Dorothy Ward. We thank you that Miss Jane Hardy is doing better. We pray for little Land Davis, newborn, who had brain surgery recently. We pray for uh, Eric Johnston and Amanda Richardson as they buried their grandpa this past week, Mr. Claude Thomas. And we thank you, Lord, for the joy of getting to remember him, what a great man he was, and what a legacy he left. We're grateful to you for him. Lord, we pray for Miss Nettie Espinoza, for Miss Marie Glish, for Dot Bates, for Johnny and Ann Hamlet, for Ed Johnson, for Merrill Jenkins, for Miss Sarah Peake, for Mr. Ken Russell. Mr. Clyde Taylor, Lord, we lift up Mike Laster and Charlie Laster and their whole family. We pray for Stanton Johnston and his family, and also for Stan and Beverly, his mom and dad, who are here in our church with us. We pray for Billy Landers, Kathy Wood's father in hospice. We lift up Laura Fister, Miss Dora Doris Parkman's daughter, and we pray for the family of Dwayne Stedham, who passed away this week. We pray for Jack Miller's mother, Joanne, up in Pennsylvania in hospice, and we pray, Lord, for Mr. Ray Cox. Lord, we lift up uh, Diane Grubbs' dad, Mr. J.B. Chandler, suffering with Alzheimer's and uh, different health concerns after falling. Lord, we pray for Bobby Brightwell. And Lord, we lift up uh, Bob Allen's friend, Ann Matheson. And Lord, we pray for concerns that are in this building 
that we know nothing about, you know all about it, and the persons who are dealing with them know all about them. And because you know all about them, we ask you, Lord, to touch those needs here today. We pray for families who are hurting. We pray for our church as we try to figure out with clarity the future that you have laid out for us. Lord, give us clarity to see where you want us to go. Give us courage to take the route that you've called us to, no matter how hard it may be. And Lord, once having set our sights on that route, give us commitment to that task. And Lord, I ask this prayer in the name of Jesus, the only name worth praying in. Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord. He answered, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I went to high school with a fella who was notorious. Let's say his name was Earl. Earl would wear a leather jacket to school 
He looked older than his age. He looked like a man in his mid to upper 20s, even though he was with us in high school. On the back of his leather jacket was a large embroidered Indian chief head, complete with the feathers. It was a side profile, and it was hugely colorful, and it was impossible to miss. He wore it every day. He wore boots, black boots, that had those chrome chains that went down both sides of them. And nobody messed with Earl. But the one thing you did know is that if you ever wanted to buy drugs, Earl was the Walmart of drug purchasing at Forsyth County High School. He made a fortune for someone who was in high school on selling drugs and getting people addicted to drugs. He thrived on it. He loved spring break in Florida. And for years, even after he graduated from high school, he would show up in Florida on the beach in the same motel where most of the high school students were staying, and he would be there the entire spring break. He told me one day that he could not remember how many occasions he would sit in a room filled with high school students and he would give them drugs and he would help them take them. He said, I saw people in the motel rooms where I was staying overdose on drugs. He said, I saw a couple of people die. He always had a switchblade on him, even at school. Nobody messed with Earl. I didn't get within 100 yards of Earl. I was afraid of Earl. But something happened to Earl. I don't remember how old he was when it happened. Maybe about 30, I'm guessing. Something happened to Earl, and Earl got saved. And the, the Earl who was notorious, who was the drug dealer of drug dealers, who uh, thrived on getting young people addicted to drugs and even saw a couple of them die in the same room where he was from the drugs that he had given them, this Earl became one of the most committed Christians that I'd ever known. And folks didn't believe it. Not Earl. Earl? A Christian? Nah. Not the Earl we knew. Not the Earl we know. Yeah, the Earl we knew became a Christian. He's one of the leaders in his church now back up in my hometown, and coming. How can the meanest man in the world get saved? In the book of Acts, the meanest man described by Luke was a man by the name of Saul. Saul was not a drug dealer, but he was uh, 
a first century terrorist, except he had a target group that he terrorized. And that target group was what they called at that time, people of the way. It would be a few uh, years before Christians were known as Christians. Up to the point where they became known as Christians, they were known as the way. And Saul, who later would be Paul, the Apostle Paul, made it his life's ambition to wipe out Christianity. The first time we hear of Saul in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where Luke tells us that he was standing guard over the coats of those who were hurling stones at a young Christian named Stephen. He had just been, Stephen that is, just been ordained as a deacon in the church. He was also a fiery preacher. And at the end of one of his sermons, a group of people who were under Saul's supervision attacked Stephen, hurled him down a hill, and then finished off his life by stoning him. And while they were stoning him, Saul held their coats and egged them on, affirming their execution of Stephen. When we move on into chapter 8, we find that Saul is a persecutor in charge, and his character is only intensified as the book of Acts continues on. Luke says that he was ravaging the church dragging off both men and women and shutting them all behind bars. And then, toward the end of Luke chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us that, that the impact of these persecutions was that Christians fled Jerusalem. It took persecution to get the church to move. That's interesting, isn't it? It took persecution to get the church to move. Let me put that another way. It takes persecution to get the church to move. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, Saul has gained a reputation as the ringleader of the movement to make Christianity extinct. He is a devout Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which made him a Roman citizen. He was a member of the Pharisees, the most important and influential religious group of his day. And he was educated by one of the primary professors of his day, a fellow by the name of Gamaliel. A very wise man, a Jewish religious leader. We are introduced to Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. A group of people like Paul, wanted to kill Christians, and they came up to Gamaliel and asked him for some advice. What should we do? And Gamaliel gave them this advice. He says, you need to do nothing. You need to leave them alone. If what they're doing is of God, which I think Gamaliel doubted that it was of God, then there's nothing you can do about it. And if it's not of God, it will fizzle out anyway. Just let them be. Pretty good advice from Gamaliel, very wise man. But Saul, who was a student of Gamaliel, disagreed with Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel said, let them be. And Saul said, I'm not going to let them be. I'm going to hunt them down. And I'm going to get letters of authority from the uh, leaders in Jerusalem to hunt them down. And so he went from Jerusalem and was headed to the cities roundabout, going into synagogues in those cities, finding Christians, torturing them, imprisoning them, and executing some of them. This man was a terrorist. And if you were to ask Peter or James or John or any of the disciples in or around Jerusalem in that day, what do you think of Saul? Is there any possibility that Saul could be won to Christ? They would say, oh, it'd take an absolute miracle to win Saul to Christ. Don't think that's ever going to happen. Have you ever seen someone so rough, so bad, so mean, so evil, that you wondered if that person could ever be saved? Or have you ever been in a situation so bad, so tough, so mean, so evil, that you wondered if that situation could ever be reversed? On the way to Damascus, Saul saw a blinding light. He was put to the ground and he was blinded. He heard a voice. It was the voice of the Lord. And the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did you get that? Now, Jesus is already dead and resurrected and back to the Father. And he says, why are you persecuting me? The me was the church. The church is the body of Christ in this world. And Saul was persecuting the church. Therefore, he was persecuting Christ. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? That's an interesting question for someone who doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord, isn't it? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And he told them, he said, I want you to go to Damascus. There's a guy named Ananias who'll be waiting for you there. And he will speak further to you, lay hands on you. I have work for you to do. And when Saul got up, he couldn't see. And the soldiers who were with him, I'm sure wondering what was going on, had to lead him to Damascus. And there, long story short, he meets up with Ananias, who was reluctant at first, but finally went to Saul, laid hands on him, and the Bible says that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. His Christian conversion was complete. I look at this passage of Scripture, and I, I, I think about what the church faced in, in being confronted with this man called Saul. Both his terrorism and his conversion. What did they do with it? And I want to share some things that I've observed in this passage about it. First of all, I want you to note that the church should always be a threat to religion as usual. What was Saul so up in arms about? Here's what he was up in arms about. This small band of believers who were stationed in Jerusalem but had gone to other parts of Palestine at this, at this point, they were making a difference. They were threatening the Roman Empire, they were threatening the religious establishment. And I'll tell you, if the church is doing what she ought to be doing throughout the history of the church, past, present, and future, then she ought to be posing a threat to religion as usual. 
Religion as usual was the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. And this new way, this Christian uh, faith was posing as a threat to religion as usual. And folks, let me tell you, even today, although it's harder for us to see, the church, if she's doing what she needs to be doing, will be posing a threat to religion as usual. The reason that it's harder to see is you and I, many of us, are practicing religion as usual. And if there are ever times when you are in worship and you feel uncomfortable for some reason, quite possibly it's because something in the church was working as it was supposed to and it made you uncomfortable in your religion as usual. I'm convinced that God is sick to his stomach of religion. Not only should the church be a threat to religion as usual, but second, we notice in this passage that the church is always on standby. Now, by that, I don't mean that we're sitting around doing nothing, waiting for something to happen. The church is to be doing. The church is to be active. The church is to be witnessing and worshiping and fellowshipping and teaching and discipling. But while we're doing all of those things, we're also on standby. Ananias, sitting in Damascus, what's he doing? He's, he's doing what Christians normally are doing. He's studying, he's reading, he's praying, he's worshiping, he's evangelizing. But he's also waiting for the movement of God. The church that is operating as God has called the church to operate is a church that is sitting ready, sitting on standby, waiting for God to move. And God moved. Isn't it interesting now, Saul doesn't go to Ananias' house. Did you notice that? He goes to the house of a man named Judas, not the Judas Iscariot, a totally different Judas. He goes there. God leads him to Judas' house, not to Ananias' house. And when he gets there, when Saul gets there, God doesn't send Peter or John or one of the main apostles there to lay hands on him, he sends a guy that we have up to this point never heard of and afterward will never hear of again, Ananias. You may be someone that the world has never heard of. You may be someone who at some point the world will never hear of again, but you are a person who is on standby and God has an appointment for you to act. The church is on standby. Number three, the church being on standby, God places people in our path so that we and they can be drawn closer to God. Ananias. Now, Ananias, I'm sure, and all the other Christians in Antioch, uh, in Damascus, had heard that Saul was on his way. And I'll tell you, it was not a good thing to think about. When they thought about Saul coming, terror gripped their hearts because they knew that when he came, he would come to kill. He would come to torture. He would come to persecute. He would come to terrorize. But what Ananias did never dream of was the fact that this Saul, this terrorist, was the very person who God was going to put into his path, not to kill him or terrorize him, but God was putting Saul in Ananias' path so that Ananias 
could help Saul draw closer to the Lord. And in doing that, Ananias himself drew closer to the Lord. Let me offer a suggestion for you and me. God's putting people in your path. They're around you when you eat. They're around you when you work. They're around you when you go to school. They're around you when you go to the ball field. They're around you at the gym and the fitness center. They're around you. And God has put some of those people in your life so that you can help them draw closer to the Lord. And in doing so, you yourself will draw closer to the Lord too. Number four, no one is so bad and no condition so horrible that they are outside the grasp of God's changing grace. I'm not saying that God's grace changes. I'm saying that God's grace changes you and me. And there is no person so mean, so evil, so terrible. And there is no situation so awful, so miserable, so intolerable that that, that, that person or that situation is outside of the grasp of the grace of God. God is a miracle worker. And he's working in your life. Saul was the baddest of the bad but he was not outside the reach of God. Number five. Not all salvation experiences are the same. There's a mistake that people make with regard to Saul's conversion. And and mind you, Saul's conversion was very important. Do you realize that in the book of Acts, that conversion experience is related to us three times? You think Luke was trying to tell us it was significant? This man who would become arguably the most significant missionary after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His conversion experience was important. But let me tell you something. Luke did not give us that conversion experience three times so that we would make sure that our conversion experience was identically like Paul's. Because it won't be. I know some people whose A salvation experience was traumatic. I mean, God got hold of them, and it was like getting hit with a a, a meteorite. The salvation experience was so strong. I know some other people whose salvation experience is so subtle and so timid-like that it's almost like they, they faded into it. I know some folks who could tell you the year, the date, the month, the day, the the hour in which they gave their lives to Christ and Jesus saved them. I can show you some other people who look back on their lives and they say, you know, preacher, I, I couldn't give you a date, but I just know that over a process of time, that time could be months or years, I, I experienced the salvation of the Lord Jesus. And a lot of times... We get to feeling uh, doubts and guilt because our salvation experience is not exactly like Paul's or somebody else's. But your salvation experience, while it may be similar to some others, there are parts of your salvation experience that will be like nobody else's. And so you shouldn't feel doubts or guilt 
about that. But let me go a little bit further and say it is wrong for us to expect that anybody else, if they're to have true salvation, must have a salvation experience like mine or like yours. Salvation in Christ is a personal issue. And the important thing is to know that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross in your place, and that he rose from the dead to give you life. And you have placed your eternal destiny in his hands. I don't care if that decision was a point in time at 6 o'clock on a Monday night in September of 1973, or if it was something that you look back and you can't exactly pin a date on a calendar, but you know over the process of time it occurred in your life. I don't care how long the point in time was. What I do care about is that you have that experience, that you know that you've invited Christ to be your Savior, and your Lord. The church is always on standby. The church is always waiting for God's instructions. The church is waiting for God to bring our plans to reality. The church can also realize that God can change our plans. The church is watching for people God brings into our lives, and the church is thrilled over the salvation of every person who'll come. Are you part of the church? What I mean by that is, have you invited Jesus into your life? Have you placed your faith, have you placed your eternal future in the hands of Christ? The people who have done that make up the church. Have you invited Christ into your life? And if you have, and therefore you are a member of the church, are you walking with your antennas up? Are you walking in the awareness that God is putting people, situations into your life to draw you and other people closer to Him? Don't think for a minute that you are so insignificant that God has no plan for you. For He does. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of Your changing grace. A grace that is able to change even the most ruthless terrorist, a grace that has reached out and changed even us. And Lord, we thank you for an experience that this church, early church, had that also teaches us to be on standby, to be on ready, to have our eyes open, our antennas up, looking for the opportunities that you place in front of us to glorify you, to help someone else, as well as ourselves, draw closer to you. And Lord, may we rejoice in the salvation of people, regardless of 
what uh, form that salvation may take. Lord, I pray for those people here this morning who have never received you as Savior. I pray that someone would come to know you as Savior. I pray for those who are saved, but they're wondering about their purpose in life. What, what am I here for? What has God saved me to do? Lord, give us clarity so that decisions can be made in this invitation right now. In Jesus' name, amen.